What's up, Stitches? Hello, hello. Welcome to episode 13. Today I'm interviewing Dr. Allison Maine. She's a researcher in handcraft, well-being, and textiles made by everyday people over the course of history. Her PhD explored the different ways that amateur making in knit and crochet, crafted alone and shared on Facebook, could affect well-being. She's also done research in a bunch of other areas, including early Soviet dress and fashion in the early feminist magazine Spare Rib. Her current work is focused on Scottish yarn and the textile archive held in the Hope McDougall collection at the Denali Castle Museum and Grounds. And she's big into knitting, so much so that she has her own designs available on Payhip and her website knitrospective.com. I will, of course, put links to everything on the So What Twitter and Instagram. So I wanted to interview Allison not only because she is a delight, but also because she focuses on something I don't really talk about often on this podcast, contemporary needlecraft. And that intersection between making and well-being, especially in these dumpster fire times. Also, we haven't really gotten into knitting and crocheting much on this podcast thus far, and this is a way to do that. So here's to you, all of you knitters and crocheters and fans of either or both or neither or whatever. And also to everyone else too! Textiles are for everyone! Because this episode is all about needlework and well-being, there's less of a focus on specific objects and more on general needlework ideas. So sit back, relax, and listen to a topic unlike anything discussed on this podcast thus far. Nice to meet you. Nice to finally meet you too. How did you get interested in textiles and knitting and crochet specifically? But more than that, can you tell me a little bit about your life journey? Oh heck! Um, well, right. a, a very, um, very strange <laughs> life journey, and yeah, you wouldn't. I would never have thought. I would never have thought. Never mind anyone else. Um, for me to be here, uh, where I am. So, um, I was a, a an English teacher for nearly twenty five years. Um, and I was always kind of needly, I, I used to say. I would like, um, used to do a lot of embroidery and needlepoint and things got smaller and smaller and smaller. Uh, so I ended up doing miniature cross stitch and then I fell in love with um, bead weaving jewellery with tiny little delicate beads and incredibly fine, fine needles that almost looked like a hair. Um, and... And that was that was my passion, and it was my my unwinding. Um, and then I was really ill about seven years ago or so, and I couldn't I couldn't make that stuff. I couldn't my, get my hands to grip these tiny needles, but I wanted to be doing something. So my daughter, my beautiful daughter, um, who taught herself at, when she was at university, showed me how to crochet. Because instead of a, a tiny, tiny needle that I had to hold between thumb and finger, I could have this chunky crochet hook in my fist and quite thick yarn, and I could just be creative. Um, and I set myself the challenge of um, making something and posting on Facebook, which was a new thing to me as mm -hmm. a teacher. I'd never really engaged in Facebook before. Um posting something on Facebook every day to show what I was making with crochet oh that's so nice it is and and I really love that our story is sort of the flip side to the usual in that my daughter taught me yeah how to do that that is so that is so wholesome I love that oh what yeah. a joy and from there and I love I love crochet and I did a lot of that and then I taught myself how to knit and I think I fell in love a bit more with knitting 
mm. um, once um, once I was better and um, I n then changing tack I thought you know I'm going to do something different with my life um, and it it was a it was a really it was one of those amazing midnight conversations actually where my husband said if you could do anything at all what would it be and I said, I think I want to do a PhD about um, knitting and well-being. <laughs> yes, love that. Oh. Uh, so he said, all right, then let's let's do that. Mm. Um, and that and um, and that was sort of the next the next path. So yeah, my daughter in 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 helping me just have something to focus on and a way to be creative at a time um, when I was really unwell was the start of everything. What kind of stuff do you like knitting? Um, I am completely addicted to shawls. It took me a while to get into uh, knitting garments, uh, maybe because it felt kind of a bit overwhelming. And also, um, I just couldn't, you know, it's, it, you have to move towards that feeling of um, that you're worthy of knitting for yourself mm. in right. that way. Um, but it's all about socks and shawls. Socks, because yeah. um, at the time, um, originally, when I started my PhD, uh, we were living in the Midlands in the UK um, and I was doing my PhD in Sheffield. And then partway through my PhD, we moved to central Scotland. So I was then travelling down to Sheffield wow. and I spent an awful lot of time every week on trains. So socks are the perfect travel knit. That makes sense. Uh, and I did a lot of a lot of shawl knitting because they're kind of you just need one or two hanks of yarn and and you can produce something and then also as I it was very much about knitting for thinking so if I'm mulling over something I was thinking about something I needed to write I'd be knitting or I'd be um distracting myself yeah <laughs> uh, procrast what, what is it procrastinating oh <laughs> I like that very procrastinating much. with craft and and I started to sort of sketch out and started to design some of my own chores as well so um that's my first love for sure. Can you tell me more about your PhD on knitting and crocheting Facebook groups and what those communities are like and what did you find? Because as a not good or adept knitter or crocheter, I just didn't even know, of course these groups exist, but I have never even considered them at all. It's a really amazing space. So there are this comes with a caveat, obviously, that social media platforms can be mean, cruel places. Mm. Uh, and part of what I learned from doing this is is you have people who can work, especially in groups where if it's really well managed, that's the crucial thing. Mm. It's really well managed and moderated. Um, a community can kind of adapt to social media platform and use it for their own benefit so they might be really aware of issues with privacy and confidentiality and what might happen to their data um, and issues with trolling mm, yeah and they can manage those risks and use it to really build fantastic communities for themselves and they they um if you've got the right you know the right people coming together with that really positive goal they can be incredibly just beneficial places where people can gain a sense of of belonging and it can really impact very positively on their well-being so the project um it i set up a a 
a closed Facebook group because mm -hmm. it was important that, you know, it wasn't just about kind of like snaffling unethically anything from the kind of thousands and thousands of knit or crochet groups that are out there on Facebook. Um, so I set up a, a group specifically for research and when people consented, they they became part of the group and that ran, it was called the Woolly Wellbeing Research Group. How um, delightful, I love that name. <laughs> yeah, it, it looks cute written down and is really hard to say. Yeah. Uh, I discovered. <laughs> Uh, and it ran, um, I was collecting data for about 18 months mm. and it was incredible because what happened is obviously people were coming to the group because they were interested in their own relationship between knit and crochet and well-being and how they shared that on social media. But also it it became its own supportive community too. Um, and it, it it functioned as those those good things are. And so and I posted a, a research question every week. Um, but actually it was also a place to share here's my work in progress and here's this amazing thing I finished and here's something I need advice about and that might be textile related or it might be really personal and it became a really amazing group that after the collection of the research data was completed con has continued. There's a lot of stuff out there that really challenges whether Facebook groups or social media groups can really be that supportive, can really make a difference. And I think the answer is that for an awful lot of people, it absolutely does. As part of your project, did you think about the historical precedence of this or was it just a contemporary glimpse at this sort of stuff? Um, it was more a focus on what was happening currently, although mm -hmm. it's got really strong links and, and certainly this idea of either the sort of chat that you maybe used to have over your garden fence or the chat that you used to have if you'd gone to a sewing bee um, can certainly be found there. And some people still obviously are able to go to those sorts of um, craft groups if you're lucky enough to have a local yarn store or something like that. Uh, but for a lot of people, it was because they simply didn't have anything like that in their area, mm -hmm. or perhaps it was physically inaccessible for them, or psychologically very difficult to go out and go to a group. Um, so I think you've got that idea of people coming together um, to share their making is a really important um, human need. And I think we've seen that quite a lot in in quarantine actually so whether it's you know lots of people returning to or maybe learning to to knit or you know making sourdough or starting to quilt <laughs> or um gardening anything oh, yeah. things that are people where people are doing something with their hands but what they're doing is they're spending time nurturing themselves or nurturing their families and it's all of those sorts of activities i think we can sort of bind up together with that and I think that's why these things have flourished in in lockdown because people have had some people I should say have had the time to think about what that might mean if I'm going to be here in this space in my home looking after myself um, maybe alone maybe looking after other loved ones what what can we do to care for ourselves and it's all of those making activities um, and I th and I think that social media has really facilitated that through through um, quarantine too. If you could talk about that embodied, the embodiment of, of craft. I think there's something really important about fingertips and, um, and, and working with our hands. And sometimes that's about then what, what you're doing with those fingertips and what you're 
what you're touching so not obviously not all yarn is natural fiber i get that but certainly even if we just think about something that's the softness of of textiles regardless of, of the material it is that you're working with whether that's you know wool or alpaca or acrylic it, it's about softness um and there were a couple of participants in the research actually that talked about the um the important sort of um soothing physical feedback it gave them to be touching something that was probably natural fibers but certainly soft rather than the kind of plastics and electronics and glass they were only encountering with their fingertips throughout most of their working day mm. so we're all about you know keyboards and the mouse and the phone screen um, and so there's something really interesting about the comfort people were finding in, in what it was they were doing with their hands um, and there's some really lovely work uh, there's a couple of academics one is called Dr Emma Shercliffe and the other is Professor Fiona Hackney and they both talk about in terms of they, they talk about having a thinking space and I'm gesturing here, which is useless for a podcast. <laughs> but if you imagine you you have your fingertips holding the work in front of you mm -hmm. and your head is bent down. So you're looking down towards it and doing and what you're creating now, yes. for yourself is this circle between your head, your arms and, and just the idea of this creating two things, really a thinking space for yourself as an individual, just space to to reflect um meditate in its loosest sense of the word and to be quiet in this kind of personal space you create for yourself and i think that's really important but what they also talk about both of those academics is when that's in a group situation often that opens up a space for conversation amongst people so with your head down your eyes on your work your your body is open in this sort of circular frame and then you're probably also sitting in a circle mm -hmm. that's probably why there are such incredible ways of communicating when you're in a group so how does that work in social media terms i think because we're so making is embodied but also our use of social media or social or, or electronic devices is is pretty embedded and embodied in our normal lives too i think people are also really capable of having the screen as that interface with other people as, as you're sitting and making so that that's also providing that sort of space in front that circular space you form in front of you where you can think and make and share and reflect how do you think your study and making of modern needleworked objects inform the study of historic counterparts is there a mix an intersection between making textiles and studying them the objects we might be talking about might have been made last week or 400 years ago but the 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 physical action of ma the making is the same uh which is a kind of mind-blowing idea for a start mm -hmm. anyway isn't it um so i think but what i'm really interested in is that I'm really interested in this idea of thinking through making, whether it's that personal reflection or for yourself while you're making something. I think it helps us to understand there are more connections than disconnections um, between modern life and, and the past. So um, especially, I think, when you're thinking about, yeah, that connection to the body and 
your breathing and then whether you're doing things you know fixing and making and so if you you're seeing i'm doing some work currently um on uh, historic textiles in archives and you see these patches and you see the mending and you see that you know the you know the fixing of things and the construction mm -hmm. of things um and if you're interested in making textiles these are instantly recognizable skills that are on display in front of you in in the in the fabric um yeah so i think it's about connection seeing connections that idea of thinking through making and, and having different ways of, of knowing, different ways of understanding the world. So, you know, that kind of tacit, haptic, fingertip, touch ways of knowing. Um, it might help you tell a story. You might understand the story of the fabric in front of you. Um, you think about the other people who made that and their stories um, all the way through to much more precise things about you know, um, technical construction, say, yeah. or specific skills or techniques. You can you can track all of these things, and it, it helps you think them through for yourself. Whether that's at a yeah a technical level or or just a kind of quiet thinking level. Could you give me an overview of all that you're working on? I, I feel like you do all of the things, and I would love to know all of the things. I think I think that the link the link for me is. Um, it's still, I'm really interested in the idea of amateur making. Mm -hmm. So not not um, professional level couture construction, um, but ordinary people doing their everyday making as as amateurs. So I think that that's the thing that connects all of these things for me. And 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 so some of these diversions came about because I've um, I have been a tutor and designer at Edinburgh College of Art uh, for a couple of years, working really across disciplines. But um, I worked for nearly three years um, as an assist assistant associate lecturer at Sheffield Hallam University. And I did a lot of teaching in fashion theory and, and cultural and historic um, How cool. perspectives on fashion, So, which was brilliant. So I suppose um, teaching this stuff has allowed me to really think through and experiment some of ideas. I discovered this uh, these examples of new Soviet dress from the early 1920s, so not long after the uh, revolution in Russia. Um, and you had a number of designers um, who were creating patterns f effectively sanctioned by and promoted by the state mm -hmm. because it was important to have a new Soviet way of dressing that was appropriate for your labour and... Um, was about moving away from the old bourgeois um, past. Um, and you had this incredible um, woman called Nadezda Lamanova, who was, I think, the only designer that had designed for the Russian royal family pre-revolution, but continued to work for the new Soviet state afterwards. Ooh, um, oh, the power. And she did these, yeah, she, so she like dressed the Tsarina, <laughs> but then she was doing patterns for the everyday amateur maker. But they're amazing. And the, wow. um, she had a whole load of patterns that were then published in a, effectively as like a colour supplement from a newspaper called Red Field in 1922. Um, and there were just these pages uh, where on one page you had the design for taking an old piece of textile, because textile production really collapsed, during that time so blankets and old prayer shawls and things like that and how to turn those into new soviet dress 
Um, so for a start, I was really interested in the idea of here is a 2D single line drawing that assumes so much knowledge that amateur makers can look at that and go, okay, I understand mm, what you mean. Right, I can now make that into a two-piece dress. Um, and also, she was really, she was really extraordinary because although she was designing this stuff for um, the new Soviet regime, she was also doing radical things like, kind of depends on your style. Think about your body shape. What would, what do you want? Do you want a bit of a fancy? Paris fashion inspired bell sleeve um, which was is not at all what she was supposed to be doing <laughs> but she was she was writing about um think about your body and make something that suits you um which we think of as maybe quite a modern concept mm. again as a, a side project because I just got excited about it mm. I, I did a lot of work on how amateur sewing and then more generally craft handcraft was portrayed in the feminist magazine spare rib from the 1970s up to the 1990s yeah. and again that there was a, a a special issue in 1973 called stitch fingers um that had loads and loads of features about making your own clothes as a radical feminist act so oh. Stuff the high street where you're, you, everyone assumes you're a certain shape, and also actually stuff paper patterns, the the oppression of the paper pattern, and and instead take your own measurements, draw these things out on fabric, make an outfit like this, um, and again that idea of deciding how you want to present yourself as a woman, uh, making to fit your own body, um, displaying your identity through your clothing, uh, not as an oppressive patriarchal structure, but a really radical feminist approach to life. So I just got really fascinated in that. These uh, radical acts of needlework and your mention of historic examples of making for your body bring up questions about inclusivity in the world of needlework now. What are your thoughts on that? You've got a really difficult issue, I think, at the moment with... Uh, representation of especially white women in in handcrafting publications mm -hmm. uh, you've got to acknowledge the privilege embedded in handcraft at the moment so if you're to be able to afford yarn to be able to afford fabric um is a really privileged position and that's not inclusive of all sorts of layers of society and yeah. it seems this kind of um bit of a kind of like middle-class white lady enclave that's really problematic and things are really shifting with that you've got really great um things coming um much more into popular view like all the work done by the BIPOC in fiber group yeah um with Lorna Hamilton Brown who's been writing about black women knitting for ages I know you talked to Rose Sinclair a couple mm -hmm. of weeks ago about her her work about historic um textile making among amongst groups of black women and just making sure that oh you know there's just so much still to do to um to look at inclusivity in the in the modern knitting and sewing and textile world um it's some it's sometimes seen as kind of a comfy space and it's and it's not been it's been a really unsafe space for lots and lots of people and there's yeah there's work to do in that and lots of people find that 
threatening and lots of people want to make it better but get um, uncomfortable and not quite sure what to do for the best and then you've got some people going listen to us we've been saying this for so long um, we're here and we want and we're, we're part of this and we just need to be able to to work together to address some of these ideas about inclusivity um, so yeah it's not it's not done it's not done we there's uh it's a really challenging space which is back in a way that sort of social media is where an awful lot of that stuff's happening so going back to i'm i have to be honest i'm really glad i'm not doing that research now because i don't think researching facebook groups and what people are doing on instagram if i was doing that now it would be a very different story um because that there have been terrible, terrible things have happened on these social media platforms that have, have really excluded people. So, yeah, we've got to... It's a really active, deliberate decision to keep being focused on equality. You know, when we, talk, when we say inclusivity, we're talking about inequalities. And so it's, yeah, keep doing the work, people. So this leads well into a question I think you've answered in several ways, but I like, it's the question I always ask everybody on this show. And it's, what do you think the role of needlework is in today's world? And you have, I think more than most people, a really good understanding of it because you are, you are in it. You are, you do the work <laughs> in the present about the present. Uh, I think, oh, it's, that's a really complicated question, obviously. Mm -hmm. So, for me I think it's about there's something about connecting with historic practices so again that the idea of if 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 you're doing any any stitching you're using the same physical gestures that have been used as you say for hundreds and thousands of years there's something about connection to the past and what human bodies need to protect and comfort themselves um whether that's actually by making a garment or just you know the the quiet act of stitching being psychologically repairing to you there's something still about the breath and what happens to your to your body except of course when we get frustrated and we want to throw it against the wall because it's not working but in theory that kind of soothing of your body the breath working with your fingers um concentrating on something that is probably a natural fiber or at least a soft fiber and you those actions, I think, are about being human. It's not about a particular setting in time. And we're good at trying to ignore our bodies in modern life. Mm -hmm. You know, we we bring ourselves to work, but we're not interested in our physical bodies at work. We have to be like, you know, a brain on a stick and we mustn't, you know, you mustn't get ill at work and you have got to kind of keep going. And um, our lives are about the electronic and we, yeah, we are encouraged to forget about our physical bodies and I think it helps to reconnect with that <laughs> and, and now my final question how do we learn more about your work do you have anything you'd like to promote tell us everything okay so I'm on twitter <laughs> as at nitty phd Lovely. and that is a little bit more worky on there I try and kind of separate out a little bit I'm on instagram as at nitrospective I'm literally gonna um, go to right now perfect which is everything from you know bread and um spinning to knitting and doing a lot of embroidery at the moment oh so fun um 
And Knitrospective is the name of my kind of nascent knit design work. So you'll also find me at knitrospective.com, which is a blog which is in two halves, really. So there's a research focus um, where there's links to um, papers and other stuff that I've written and published. And then there's a design section which looks at my knit design work. So knitrospective.com is... Um, mostly shawls, some other accessories, there's a couple of socks on their way um, and some of that is um, focused on raising money for charity and some of it is focused on a research project I've done where um, I'm designing shawls inspired by women librarians. That was my interview with Alison. What I cut out at the end of it was my incredibly loud and excited reaction to hearing about the shawls inspired by women librarians. I am obsessed. And I hope you enjoy the interview as much as I did. I really, really love that no matter how much things change, we still sew and embroider and knit and crochet and make lace and do all of our needle crafts in the same way people have been doing for hundreds and thousands of years. There's something very grounding about that. Styles change, technology changes, but much of needlework stays the same, which is very wholesome. But as Allison and I talk about, it also means that spaces for textile craft can be exclusionary and limiting. And that's something we need to talk about and think about and keep fighting against. Needlework is for everyone, every race and class and ethnicity and gender identity and body shape and anything else. Needlework wasn't always that way. It's historically bound up in issues of racial and religious and gender disparity. But we have a chance to make the study and creation of needlework inclusive and welcoming and open to all. I hope we can do that together. And I hope we can be mindful of our well-being and others' well-being while doing that. Okay, that's it for me. Thanks for listening and for being a friend of the podcast. So fun. Now go out and stitch some stories by joining crafting Facebook groups and fighting for inclusion and justice and equality throughout the field of textiles. Bye.